my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez is the founder and editor-in-chief of Sokolo Public Square. He has written for such leading publications as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Time, Newsweek, and the Los Angeles Times, where he was the longtime op-ed columnist. He's the author of Mongrels, Bastards, Orphans, and Vagabonds, Mexican Immigration, and the Future of Race in America, which the Washington Post listed among the best books of the year. In 2012, he was named a Goldman Sachs Senior Fellow at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He also founded and directs the What It Means to Be American Project with the Smithsonian Institution. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Wow, this is a great crowd. Um, Thanks for coming out. Uh, it's kind of, uh, kind of weird to do a Sokol event and be on the stage, but bear with me. I'm going to uh, frame tonight's event briefly because it's a little bit of an unwieldy question that we, we answered, and I don't necessarily think we're going to answer it. But um, the roots of this program were from the PST. Gloria, are you here? This is, don't take this personally. <laughs> the last paragraph in the about of the PST statement is this. With its historical roots in Latin America and its current demographics, Los Angeles might be described as tomorrow's capital city. Not sure of what. But in a way that is possible only in LA, Pacific Standard Time, LALA, will implicitly raise complex and provocative issues about present day relations throughout the Americas and the rapidly changing social and cultural fabric of Southern California. So Peter and I are a little befuddled by the statement and we thought, okay, let's, let's poke a little fun at, the, at, the, at this big Mount Olympus on, on the hill. Um, is LA really changing toward Latin America? Or is it changing away? Hasn't the biggest demographic shift in the city of LA in the last 20 years been the growing number of Anglos? And to be specific, hipsters? <laughs> <laughs> if you know the history of Latinos in LA, and, and, and forgive me, I'm gonna speak about Mexicans, there are 75% of Latinos in, in Southern California of Mexican origin. You know, that, you, know, you know that the presence of Latin America waxes and wanes. Um, most immigrant experience in the U.S. have really simply discrete beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, Mexican-Americans, it's not that easy. Uh, the process isn't that linear. Instead, Mexican-Americans have been struggling historically with a confusing, awkward, often painful collision of competing and mixed identities, language, cultures, generational divides, all while creating, some, while creating something new that we call our own. Each generation, each family, each person, um, the first ethnic Mexicans to become Americans, of course, in the Southwest, Southwest did so in the mid-19th century by, by way of conquest and annexation. So you could guess you can call them native-born. Uh, by 1890, however, the majority of ethnic Mexicans in the Southwest were recently arrived immigrants, many brought here to work in the mines or laid track for the railroad. Uh, the 19-teens, because of the Mexican Revolution, the teens and then the 20s saw high immigration from Mexico. But by 1940, the majority of ethnic Mexicans in, in L.A. were U.S.-born. Three decades later, by 1970, and I'm looking specifically at this man right here, by 1970, 84% <laughs> of Mexican-Americans in L.A. County were U.S.-born. 84%. English was dominant, and, and, and the majority of those 84% were third generation, meaning the grandchildren of immigrants. Mexico had faded. Of course, the 70s and 80s saw vast waves of immigration, and the equation changed again. In the 90s, the majority of Latinos in Southern California were once again foreign-born, and the Spanish language was once again ascendant. But guess what happened since the 90s? Those numbers have flipped again. 
While in 1990, 60% of LA County Latinos were foreign born, today, in 2016, the opposite is true. 40% are foreign born and declining. And that trend is continued to con projected to continue for as long as anyone can tell. Today, the number of new arrivals to LA is almost as low as it was in 1970. LA is no longer a popular destination for Latin American immigrants. And because latter generation Latinos are much less likely to speak Spanish than immigrants, the share of Latinos who speak the language has again begun to decline. And we're now calling into question what our ties to Latin America will be. For the first time since the gold rush, California-born residents now make up the majority of Californians. The same holds true of Angelinos. The majority of us are homegrown. And again, I look at you looking at that, that's different meanings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's right, LA is, is becoming gradually less immigrant and perhaps less global. So what the heck is the Getty talking about? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> what we can do is share our stories about how we negotiate identities and cultures and pasts and futures. I'm one of those mythical native Californians you might have read about. I was born near the corner of Sunset in Vermont. My father was born in LA and baptized, as, as, as was I, at La, Place, La Placita Church downtown. My mom was born in northern San Diego County. Were you too? Yeah. All right. <laughs> and baptized at the San Antonio de Pala Mission in northern San Diego County. My, my paternal great-grandfather arrived in the U.S. in Arizona from Mexico in 1893. <laughs> my family has been American for so long, sometimes I'm tempted to wear one of those little Puritan buckle hats <laughs> when I get into Sky Harbor in Phoenix. But yet, despite my rootedness in Southern California, you know, I've always had to contend with the presumption of foreignness. Um, I was obliged, as many Mexican-Americans were, to grapple with the immigrant debate it, it, you know, and what it means for me, for my country, for my city. It was impossible not to be swept up by it. When activists bashed illegal immigrants, long-established Latinos were not immune from the anti-Mexican invective. They didn't make a real frickin' distinction, <laughs> as we know. And stereotyping just didn't come from the racist yahoos. You know, I wrote an op-ed column for the LA Times for many years, and once in a while I'd still get a request to write about Venezuela, a country I've never been to. <laughs> 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 but then there's that odd combination of total distance and affinity for a country one's family hasn't lived in for 100 years. You know, I kind of, uh, Mexico's kind of cool, you know? It's like, there's like, you know, I'm not Mexican, but shit, I kind of like Mexico. It's a, that weird distance and tension and affection and allure that we all kind of deal with, and, um, and, it's, and, and we all do it in our own way. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is the in-betweens, the disconnects, the convergences of identity and culture, with three Angelinos with very different stories and trajectories in the City of Angels. Um, I, I want to leave one, one image that I thought might help us. One of the best images of when the Mexican and the Spanish and then Mexican LA intersects with Anglo America. Um, driving down Hoover, right? Lafayette Park, you're from Wilshire. Drive down toward USC. Everyone notice how the streets come in diagonally toward you, right? Do you know why? Because the Spanish city was laid out at 40, designed to be the streets were at 45 degree angle from the cardinal points. The streets are go from the southwest to the northwest. Downtown is funky that way. <laughs> but right then, at Hoover, the Anglo-American city starts, and it's at the cardinal points, north, south, east, west. And that's why Hoover. And that is this weird little choque there. There's a little collision that's between wonderful. the cities. That's cool. And the center of the city, and you barely notice it. But that's where one city starts and the other begins. And on that note, I'd like to introduce tonight's guests. <laughs> 
That's where you applaud. <laughs> Not you. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Cheech Marin. He's an actor, director, writer, musician, and art collector, best known as one half of the Cheech and Chong duo. He is also a preeminent collector of Chicano art. He was born in South Central Los Angeles and grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Yes, <laughs> Jenny Medina is a national correspondent for the New York Times based in Los Angeles. A native of Southern California, she has covered the region for several years, focusing on the uneven economic recovery, immigration, criminal justice, and education. Lastly, but not least, Leon Krause is an author, reporter, news anchor, award-winning Mexican journalist. His work was, has appeared in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the New Yorker, the Atavist, Letras Libres, and a long list of publications, both in his native Mexico and the United States. He currently anchors the nightly news for Canal 34, Univision's flagship local station in Los Angeles. Please welcome all of them. Yeah, you're kind of embarrassed when you meet an icon and you want to ask him the question everybody freaking asked him for the last 30 years. But Born in East LA was a really great movie. <laughs> and it really is really pertinent to tonight. Um, and I, it's not streaming, dude. I don't know what's wrong with that. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But I watched the YouTube about four times of the song today. Yeah. Born in East LA, it was a song that you turned into a movie you wrote, you direct. Tell us about it. What was going on in your head, your heart, and what? Why, why is a silly, ridiculous movie so poignant to a Mexican-American watching it? Oh, God, you know, it tells our story for the most part. It was, it was actually a true story. I was, I was uh, writing an, a, an album, the last Chichin Chong album, and, uh, and, it was, and, and the video age came in. MTV <coughs> had its, its genesis right at the same time, and everybody was all gaga about MTV. So I said, oh, I'll write a video. And I, and I, and I, was, I needed one more, and I was sitting in my kitchen, and I was reading the newspaper uh, and listening to the radio at the same time. And the newspaper count was this young boy, I think he was around 12, 13, that had couldn't speak English and was caught in an immigration raid and deported, although he was an American citizen. Couldn't speak Spanish. Couldn't speak Spanish. Yeah. No, he we couldn't speak hardly anything. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean to be funny. He had learning issues. Okay. And <laughs> I take that back. Yeah. Edit that. You're going to get picketed. Um, and so I was reading the story, and the song Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen's song, was playing coincidentally at the same time. And I'm reading the story, and I started laughing. I said, he was born in East LA, you know. And that was his trouble, and, and it hit me. Oh, that's, that's the song. That's the, that's the video. And, so, and I, what I had to do is I had to go to the, uh, get the record of Born in USA, because I didn't know what the song was about. Huh. Because all I remember was every once in a while he was saying, Born in the USA! <laughs> okay, you know, so I, oh, that's about Vietnam vets and they're returning and how they're retreated. And, like, and so I said, well, I got something along the same lines. And then I had to start the process of getting the permission from Mr. Springsteen, which was uh, 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 
time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> he did at the end, you know, but I had a track. He was, he was coming off a tour, a world tour, getting married and going on another tour. And so when I finally tracked him down, I could hear it was backstage in Belfast. And I, he was on stage, and I was talking to his manager, and I, and I was singing. And just as I was getting to the part where I wanted to, he started singing, Born in the USA. So it was prophetic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the essential premise of the video and the movie is that an American-born, uh, Mexican-American, is deported to Mexico and doesn't quite know what to do there. Yeah. And then tries like hell to get back. Tries like hell to get back, you know. And, and, uh, and I, it just seemed like such a logical thing, you know, that he would try to get back. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, realities. So, yeah, I could have phoned and, you know, picked him up. But that wouldn't be the greatest movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but before we move on, there's, a, there's this poignant moment at the end in mm. which, which the, the Chicano who's been deported to Mexico has found common cause. Yeah. With Mexican undocumented. Yeah, he has, to, he has to go through the same process that they do and, and, and sneak across the border. And so it was interesting because during that period when I was making the movie, I was hanging out with the, with the border patrol, you know, to get some, some insight as to what... The, and so they finally, at, at, right there at the Tijuana border, you know, it says, okay, well, they're getting ready to do it because it's starting to get dark. And you just see everybody masked on the Mexican side, and there was nothing between the Mexican side and the American side. It was denuded. There was maybe a, not even a bush. Mm. And so these guys are going to sneak over? <laughs> I, did, I didn't, but <coughs> once dark fell, they just started walking because there were so many. And, and, and I went out with the patrol, and it was at night, and we're driving around, and there's guys walking. You know, on either side of the car, on the end, hello. <laughs> hello, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you wanna buy a, 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 a paleta or something? You know? <laughs> and it's just, it was unbelievable yeah. to me. And they stopped them if they wanted to, and generally they just didn't, yeah. you know? So yeah. it's, okay, I'm living in this twilight zone. What really is going on here? Leon, you uh, have been in LA for how long? Six years now. And I, I, you're, you are born in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. um, East Mexico City. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, what was, your, what's your, what was your first experience? How old were you when you first came to L.A.? And, and what, what were your impressions of it? I was uh, six years old. My, my father brought me to see Fernando Valenzuela pitch in his... Yeah. In his... Uh, <coughs> I... I, I, I Probably could say his prime, but his prime lasted a long time. No, but yeah. his his fantastic historic '81 season, mm -hmm. and uh, it's actually a, an interesting story because uh, we sat in the last, probably the last seat in Dodger Stadium, right by the lights. And I remember the feeling of watching Valenzuela uh, pitch in 1981. And then uh, fast forward what, 30 something years and I had the honor of throwing a first pitch in a Dodgers <laughs> game. Uh, and I was, I got, it was a slow strike. <laughs> it was a slow, but it was a strike. Uh, and uh, I have never been so nervous in my entire life, but also I, I, I felt like I, like I had made it. I don't know if justifiably great. or not, but I, it was like a fast track uh, immigrant success story uh, <laughs> right there in Fantastic. Chavez Ravine. Fantastic. Now, Jenny, you're local, you're Riverside. Yes. And you have the great misfortune of being Panamanian, Panam not that that's a misfortune, <laughs> of everybody constantly assuming you're Mexican. <laughs> that's right. And so what was like Panamanian American in the Inland Empire, 
And you had to negotiate this, the, your ethnicity in different ways and lots of assumptions about who you were, what language you spoke. Tell us about your sort of Latina LA story. So when I was growing up in Riverside, Riverside was not a part of LA at all. It was like the sticks, no offense to the 909, <laughs> now the 951. Um, and I went to school with about a school that was probably 80 to 90% Mexican-American, um, and then a bunch of white kids, and the white kids were rich, and the Mexican kids were poor, mm -hmm. and I'm the child of two public school teachers, and I thought that was super rich. I thought when I would hear about the 1% of the country, I thought we were a part of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't speak Spanish uh, as a, most, most of my life, and all my Mexican friends called me Weta, which is a derogatory <laughs> word of calling me white girl. <laughs> and then I went to USC and moved into this dorm that was supposed to be the multicultural dorm. And I was really excited to meet multicultural people, whatever that meant. <laughs> and all the girls, and sorry to deal in stereotypes here, but all these girls had these bracelets with these links around them, and they were these Tiffany's bracelets. And I had never even heard of Tiffany's. And all of a sudden, I felt really Latino. <laughs> and for me, a lot of it was about class, uh, and still is, I think, one of the things that fascinates me about living here is how much class and race are intertwined. Um, but I also happen to be Jewish, and that has always been like a confounding factor. People don't understand, like, what? There's Jews in Latin America? How could that be? There's another one sitting to my left. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I remember once hearing the phrase, probably in college, in a ethnic studies or Chicano studies class, ni de aquí, ni de allá. Mm -hmm. And I remember for the first, it means neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so profoundly moved by that um, description, I thought, oh, that's finally what I am. Mm -hmm. um, right. In the middle, in between. In the middle. Your relationship with Spanish, I think you may have mentioned that there, there, you, there, you had a reason, to, uh, intimate reason to learn it at one point. What was that? So my parents are both Spanish teachers, and they're not in the audience, so they can't correct my uh, version <laughs> of history, and didn't, wanted me to be American, so didn't teach me Spanish. Um, I grew up going to Panama most of my life for many years, and my great-grandmother didn't speak English, but that was never enough um, motivation or not frequent enough for me to learn it. But then in high school, I had a Salvadoran boyfriend whose parents didn't speak any English, and I really wanted to impress them. Ooh. So I learned really quick. I started paying attention in Spanish class. I got to be pretty decent, but I still have terrible vocabulary. I still have terrible grammar, and it's still a huge source of embarrassment, frankly, for me, that I don't speak perfect Spanish. My kids, just, I just took them to Panama for the first time last month. They don't speak hardly a lick of Spanish. Uh, and yeah, I feel like it's something I'm still a little bit ashamed of when I'm talking to you about can, it. Can I be a journalist? Do, do, do you hold it against your parents in any way? Or oh, 100%. You... Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I publicly shame them all the time, including right now. <laughs> My parents always spoke Spanish when they didn't want me to understand. Yep. Yeah, yep, that too. That's how I understood. <laughs> <laughs> So, Cheech, you are famous. You, you, you wear a T-shirt, which uh, I think you said you lost. I haven't lost it. I just haven't found it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a provocative and yet like totally logical T-shirt that says Chicano art is American art. Like I see it and I think, and I know shit. Yeah. Why the why why the feeling? Of, why, why do you feel obliged to, to declare 
that? Well, because it is heretofore unrecognized. Uh, when I was starting to deal with museums, and when we were, we were touring the, uh, the collection, uh, one of the conversations I've had, I had was with the, uh, the curators and the, and the staff at LACMA here in LA. And there was uh, a pretty entrenched uh, resistance against showing Chicano art at the museum at that time. And I was shunted off to different departments and different curators. I finally got a meeting. And uh, the first thing that the, one of the curators says, well, we have a section of Latin American art. I said, I said wait a minute, stop it. We're, this is American art made by Americans here in America. And it talks about <laughs> American themes. Uh, I, you know, it may be there's Latin influence, but it is American art. And they just, you just... Uh, saw that look in their eyes, and why don't you just get out of here? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it was, they were very entrenched that they were not going to show this collection where the Smithsonian, the de Young, the Weissman already had shown this collection. And, and this is the hometown of the, of the genesis of uh, Chicano art. And so it was, uh, there was an entrenched battle, and I had to prepare for it. When I finally got the, the interview with uh, uh, the, the, cure, uh, the, the director at the time, uh, uh, I, I, I knew it was going to be a very contentious meeting, because I'd been trying to put out feelers to, to her associates, and I want to get this meeting, because I want to have the, the show in LACMA. And it was, so finally, I, I just I insisted that I have a meeting, so I knew it was gonna, <laughs> some shit was going to happen. <laughs> and so I went to my therapist, who I was seeing at the time. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> I swear to God, she's like, this is going to be, you know, and I, I practice ways to sit, non-confrontational <laughs> ways to sit and, and to listen, which is not easy for me, and, and, and to go into this meeting, and uh, the meeting was, was very contentious, very contentious. Well, well, one, where does this come from, this presumption of foreignness uh, from a guy from, who went to Alamany High School in yeah. San Fernando? Uh, did you, there were some, there were some, anybody went there? Alamaniacs? Yeah, there you go. Alamaniacs. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, there you go. So where does that come from, one, the presumption of foreignness, and two, have you made any headway since you started wearing this famous T-shirt? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, incidentally, the, the museum that printed it was the Philbrick Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, wow. You know, they, they recognized it right away. Chicano art is American art. Well, why don't you just call it American art? Because it's Chicano art, and it means the same thing. Right. You have to learn those terms, right. you know? So right. it's, it, it, is not, it is not our fitting in with your preconception of what the art world looks like. It's your recognition of what this is. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I've been bad. But the, but, but, but the battle goes great right now. Uh, we have played with this collection uh, over 50 museums uh, throughout okay. the United States and Europe. And, and that's unheard of with a private collection because museums don't want to do that. Uh, because, you know, it takes away their curatorial responsibility. And, 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 and I, my, my uh, reply was always, well, I have this collection because you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was, there was no argument. Leon, um, you, you're a famous man in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You have great ratings. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. And, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I think I had breakfast with you once in, in, in the, I think at the, the Georgian Hotel in Santa Monica, and, and waiters will acknowledge him and know who he is. 
but not necessarily the people next to you. Mm-hmm. And you must have a really interesting experience in LA of being easily recognizable by many people mm-hmm. and then unfamous like the rest of us <laughs> moments later. Can you explain how you... Get you bitch, get your car parked right away, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for free. <laughs> right up front, huh? For free in LA, which is great. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege. Uh, it's a privilege, A. And B, it's lots of fun. I mean, when, when, uh, when I get a chance to, to acknowledge the people who are the real protagonists of life, not only in, in Los Angeles, <coughs> but also in America, mm-hmm. uh, because this, I'm absolutely convinced that this, this, this country runs on A, immigrants, and, and, and B, um, Hispanics, Latinos. That's just mm-hmm. a fact. And uh, so when I, when I go, for example, uh, into a restaurant, uh, I, I, I always go, go to the kitchen, I always talk to the staff, and just to see the faces of the, of the uppity maitre d' who has absolutely no idea who I am, and just, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fantastic, fantastic feeling, and I honestly wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I, I, the, the thing with television, I think, especially in America, and I would imagine not only with Univision, also with our competition, although much more with Univision, of course, is that you develop a very interesting emotional bond with people. Mm-hmm. In Mexico, in my experience, there's, there's a disconnect between the, the broadcaster, the journalist, whatever, and the audience. Here, the bond is immediately, at least in my case, and I'm very proud that, that it has been so, immediately the bond has been personal and emotional. I mean, people approach me and say things like, you look thinner, you look... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you cannot... It's, it's wonderful. You, you, you look thinner, you look taller, you have better hair um, in real life, whatever. But immediately they say, I remember when you let your, your beard grow because in your family it's a tradition when someone's having a kid, they let their, 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 their beard grow out. How are your, your twins? They just, the relationship is emotional. It has nothing to do with the news. It has to do with the fact that you are there, that you are really part of, 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 of the family and of the support system in a, in a country that's not, that's not theirs. And even when it's already sort of theirs, you're still part of the support system. And it's, it's an, an incredible privilege to be, to be are there. You, uh, are you ever going back? Are you ever going to go no. back to live in Mexico? <laughs> no. No. Uh, I, I, you make me think of a, of a girl I once interviewed um, in El Mercado La Paloma, and uh, she was a dreamer. She came here when she was just a baby, and uh, I noticed that she had tattooed on her uh, right wrist uh, this beautiful uh, logo of Made in Mexico, Hecho in Mexico, with a, with a Mexican eagle. It's a beautiful logo from the 70s. He showed me Everything from the 70s is amazing. So, <laughs> and, and so it's, uh, it's right here. And I asked her, why do you have that there? Hecho in Mexico, and she, she, she told me, because I want everyone to know where I, was, where I come from, where I was made, mm-hmm. so I can see their reaction if they reject me. I, mm-hmm. And so she was very proud to be Mexican. And, uh, and so then I asked her, so you would like to, to, to go to Mexico, to go back? And she said, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would love to visit, but uh, but I'm an American, 
And that, I don't find that contradictory in the least. I think but, that's but what... But the question was about you. Well, you... yes. Uh, <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't have a tattoo of that here. <laughs> <laughs> I have others, that's oil tattoos, uh, unrelated to my immigrant status. But, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to go back. So I, I found my calling here, Greg. Uh, I, I found my calling here. My calling is to tell the story of, of, of this place, uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's what I do in Univision, and that, that's what I do, I do at USC, where I teach a class mm -hmm. uh, w uh, in which my students go and, and just embed with uh, Hispanic families in Southern California, and uh, that's what I want to do with, yeah. with the rest of my life, and cool. do it here. Cool. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jenny, you're, you're, a, you're a New York Times reporter, and how you've done some some interesting pieces on the gentrification of LA and the, and, the, and the shifts of the neighborhood. How do you imagine LA will change as it becomes more native born? What, 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 will, what will the city look, will it, will it look and taste differently than it has the, over the last 20 years? Hold on, I have to get my crystal ball. Um, or is it changing I, now? I really, I will tell you honestly and maybe disappoint you, I, I have no idea. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the fun of being here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the first thing that I thought of when you said, oh, you're a New York Times reporter, is I was thinking about when I moved, he moved here, I had lived in New York for 10 years, our office is on Wilshire Boulevard, and the first thing I noticed in the coffee shop in our office building was that there was Tapatio on the <laughs> coffee, in the regular, in the, Korean-owned coffee shop had tapatio right there next to the creamer. I was like, oh, I'm home. <laughs> and now next to the tapatio is sriracha and some other hot sauce that I don't use. I forgot what it's called. <laughs> and I just think, like, my kids are going to grow up thinking that that's totally normal, you know, to have not just one hot sauce, but three, Korean, Mexican, some other thing that I don't use. <laughs> um, and I just think that the mish mash of LA is just going to get deeper and deeper right. and more intrinsic. On the other hand, the gentrification stuff is real and the stratification stuff is huge. And I think that we live in a city where it's really easy to think that there is a lot of meaningful connection and mashup between uh, different cultures. I mean, Jonathan Gold has completely changed our city because we all mm -hmm. interact with food. But to be a cynic for a minute, it's a little bit of a superficial connection. Mm -hmm. um, I have many, many white friends, I live in mid-city, at the edge of West LA, who never venture into the neighborhoods that I go into every day and have no idea that the city is overwhelmingly not white. Oh. Um, so I don't know. I, I, think it, I think it'll kind of depend on what happens with housing and gentrification and how much political and economic power Latinos and Asians and blacks and whites all have. Um, it's a hell That's of a, a story. Pretty great answer. That's it's a good story. <laughs> um, uh, Cheech, um, home, uh, Fernando Valenzuela, yeah. um, what does L.A. mean to you? What are your iconic... L.A. memories. Hmm. Emergency hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, it's the truth. My, <laughs> I was always in them. For what? To get stitched up. 
for some reason. I was a very uh, adventurous kid, and I was, I guess, I don't know it was accident prone, but a lot of, I ended up with a lot of stitches. Um, and and that's, I was always in a, to get stitched on my, I cut my throat, uh, my head got cracked open, uh, my arms. I had 107 stitches by the time I was nine years old. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and also my dad was a policeman, LAPD. I don't get the connection, but go on. <laughs> I'm coming to that. <laughs> he, one of the beats you asked me before, what, what beat did he uh, deal in? The LAPD, they switch you around all the time in different stations, but the one that I can remember was Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, and it was the emergency hospital there. And so when we had to go pick up my dad after, after work, my mother and I, because we only had one car, we'd have to stay away from him, and it was in the parking lot of the, the emergency hospital at Georgia Street, and you saw every gang sh violence, uh, shooting, stabbing, uh, just regular domestic violence. It was coming in and out of the doors all the time. We'd just be sitting there waiting for my dad, and the ambulances <laughs> pulled up, and bloody bodies <coughs> would be uh, shoved in there. So that was, that was very normal for me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Ask for Dr. Dr. Rover, he's, he's a, he does good stitches, you know, it's like. Emergency hospitals. Yeah. I'm gonna ask all three of you really quickly, which is more Latin American, Miami or Los Ooh. Angeles? You're real quick. Absolutely Los Angeles, uh, yeah. I mean, but, but, but if I have something with Miami. I, I don't really like Miami. I, <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think LA is more Latin American, but it's less Pan American. I mean, there is more presence of, of Latin America, not every single country, maybe in Miami. But here, I, I would absolutely answer LA. Jenny? Yeah. Miami. I've never lived in Miami, but. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of hate it too. Uh, Jeez. But everybody there speaks Spanish like. like there's no uh, hesitation. The presumption is you speak Spanish. Um, and if you don't, you probably should. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're there in LA. Which is more Latin American, Miami or Los Angeles? Uh, more Latin American, Miami by far. I mean, that's my, I've been to Miami many, many times. Why would you say that? Because uh, they speak, every, it's a presumption that everybody speaks Spanish. It's a Latin American true. country. And you walk in and everybody presumes, <laughs> my wife is Russian. <laughs> and, every, and, but, and she speaks Spanish. In you Miami, learn, she does. And she, no, no, she speaks Spanish. She learns Spanish in three months, reads it, writes it, speaks it as well as I do. Mm -hmm. and, 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 every, and she's quite beautiful, and everybody assumes that she's Brazilian and starts speaking Spanish or Portuguese to her. You know, especially when she goes to Miami, they really think she's, she's uh, from there. Is it, is it, isn't also the, the presumption, except for Leon, uh, of, the, of the Latin Americanness of Miami, a, a function of the multi, of, of, of Latin Americans at every level of class? Yes. Yeah. yes. I mean, the, the wealth from Latin America and that city yeah. is striking. Yeah. And, and I have been to Miami. I wanted to hate it, but I totally loved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Shh. I was like, God, I wish I were just so as arrogant as Cubans. And I say that admiringly. <laughs> and this, this, this sense that we own this joint was just a pleasure to watch. I just wanted yeah. to move there. The yeah. <laughs> reason that I think, like, just think about why I hate it and want to love it, like, everybody's beautiful. Everybody's like, 
What? Spending this time for <laughs> getting dolled up in a way that feels like that's what I like, what my cousins do in Panama City every night. Yeah. In a way, like the schlubby Angelinos don't. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'm just talking about me. Well, no. I mean, I, I don't think it has anything to do with whether or not it's Latin American or not, but I, I just have, uh, I just think uh, LA in, in that sense. I don't know. I think it's a it's a, it's a <coughs> more, more tender city, and I'll explain why I, what I mean by That's that. A nice I mean, uh, I think that the, in Miami, there's there's the visibility is taken for granted because everyone's there. First of all, completely legally, they are there. They arrived and they're there. They're just there. And here, <laughs> you know, the immigrant community and the Hispanic community wrestles with invisibility all the time. And that makes it uh, incredibly uh, endearing. Um, I, I go back, for example, to um, this artist, uh, Ramiro, Ramiro Gomez, who, uh, who uh, I don't know if you, you know the story, Cheech probably knows the story and owns most of his work, but uh, he, <laughs> he, he, he uh, couldn't make ends meet during the crisis 2008-2009. He had to drop, off, uh, drop out of college. He was studying uh, art design, and he uh, began uh, working as a nanny in Beverly Hills. And he realized that all, everyone who worked there, all of the Hispanics who worked at the house and other houses were just invisible. And so what he started to do was he started to picking up the magazines that the lady of the house left uh, uh, around the living room or whatever, and started drawing the immigrants in these uh, domestic situations. No, the beautiful dinner, well, uh, <coughs> he added the immigrant. And, and his, his work is, for me, uh, so incredibly significant, no? Uh, and that's, that, that, that sense of invisibility makes the community, to me, incredibly endearing, and that's why my heart is here and could never be in Miami. And, and I love that you say that, and, and it's, it's also, but it's also among Mexican-Americans. I mean, Cheech Marin has to go around saying that Chicano art is American art. Mm -hmm. The invisibility is not just among immigrants. Yeah. It's a yeah. um, trick question, and no disrespect to anybody. It's, is Eric Garcetti Latino? That's a great question. <laughs> He certainly thinks he is. That's a great question. No, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that to be funny. I mean, Eric Garcetti um, <laughs> great question. portrays himself and think, I think truly, I think, to the extent that we can know what politicians actually think, <laughs> thinks of himself as Latino um, and has put enormous effort into cultivating that yeah. image. I mean, to hear, he's, he speaks, no offense to anybody, speaks much better Spanish than his predecessor. Yeah, um, well, that's not that difficult. Yeah, yeah. As, the, as a poor Spanish- With all due respect, Mr. Yeah. Villarraigos. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that goes back to this question of, well, what does Latino mean? I mean, who gets to define what Latino is? I like, thought you did, you're the New York Times. Well, so I call him Latino. <laughs> <laughs> Done. But his father was from Chihuahua. Yeah. No, his grandfather. His grandfather, his grandfather was from Chihuahua. I'll speak perfect Spanish, uh, so uh, <laughs> you know what is the percentage there? I don't, I don't know, you know, because I grew up speaking only English. My parents spoke Spanish and English. My grandparents, I think, all spoke just just Spanish. They, they, they my grandmother could speak English, but she didn't want to, and, and you know, <laughs> because you don't want, want to communicate with anybody. And, and uh, but it, it, it's you know. Uh, that it, it does fade as the, as the generations go forward, unless you make an effort to to not so let it fade. Unless you decide that you're, decide. and even if you let the Spanish fade, maybe you don't let. I don't know what does Latinidad mean. Maybe yeah. you don't let that fade. Yeah. 
So you, you, three of your four grandparents are from Mexico. Nayarit, Chihuahua, uh, uh, Guaymas, Guay and, and then, Tucson, when it was Mexico. <laughs> I kept asking my grandmother, because I had to report for school like where my grandparents were from, okay? And so, uh, uh, Nana, my, uh, my dad says that you were born in, in Mexico, but you were born in the United States. Where were you born? Tucson. Okay, Tucson, America. So it's Mexico. <laughs> and so I didn't know if it was, a, it was the Alzheimer's or the, you know, <laughs> dementia taking over. So I asked her again, so, so Nana, where are you born? It was, it was Tucson, right? Yes, Tucson, Mexico. <laughs> is LA a Latin American city? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's, it's the Latin part of America. It's not Latin American. It is the representative of the Latin part and the influence and the history mm -hmm. of America. It's a, you, so you're saying it's a Latino city? Oh, it is a Latino city, obviously. But as opposed to a Latin American city. Yeah, I don't think it's a Latin American city. I think it's a Latino city. But the Latino part of America, it is, it is a huge section of our history, and they're never going to unweave that part. Uh, you know, I, I, I was reading an article about, uh, about this, this trend that went around about English only. And so I started writing about English only well, if we have English only, then we're going to have to change everything to English. So you can't have California, Arizona, Nevada, Montana, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, San Antonio, blah, blah, blah. You know? So how is that not part of American culture? Mm -hmm. And all the other states are Indian names. The only, the only English. You know, it's, it's this giant... Spanish-speaking elephant in the room, you know? The only other English are, are all the news, New York, New Hampshire, New Jersey, you know? But it, uh, overwhelmingly, the things that we've named every single state and city in our country is not English-speaking. Is LA part of Latin America? It's not part of Latin America, but it's a Latino city. Yeah, it is a Latino city. Um, yeah, 100%. There's no, there's no place, I think, like Los Angeles yeah. in the country. We've, no, we've, uh... Leon, is LA part of Latin America? No, I, I don't think it's, it's part, of, part of Latin America. Uh, um, I, I, would, I would say it's a Latin American city, uh, uh, but mostly I would say it's, and I've, I've, I, I should quote you on this, uh, because I've, I read a piece you wrote a few years ago. Oh, let's move on. <laughs> no, it's so bright. I mean, I mean, but, and and you you argue that we we should also wrestle with the term Latino, no? Um, mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to Los Angeles and, and all that, and I agree mm -hmm. with that. I mean, I would say uh, we were discussing this whether or not this is the the northern capital of Latin America. I don't think this is the northern capital of Latin America. I do believe this is the northern capital of Mexico for sure. I mean, this is the second the second largest Mexican city in the world. It's, it's, there are more Mexicans here than in Guadalajara, just barely, but uh, there are more Mexicans here than in Guadalajara. Uh, and certainly El Salvador, this is the, this is the, 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 the northern capital of El Salvador. So mm -hmm. I think that when you add up many, many things, uh, not only numbers, but the things that are uh, much more interesting than numbers, um, this, is, this is certainly a, a, a Latino city, a Latin American city, mm -hmm. but it's not part of Latin America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, the, the city that has the second biggest conglomerations of Mexicans in the United States is Chicago. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> First time I ever went to Chicago, I couldn't believe it. I went to go get something to eat, and it was a Mexican restaurant in Chicago. What are they going to serve, Schnitzel or 
Milanesa. 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 <laughs> Enchiladas de sauerkraut. Or, uh, oh. And I couldn't believe it, you know, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's the it's, it's second biggest Latin pop, uh, Mexican population in the United States. About to be overtaken by Houston, but, but still. But do, you, do any of you, go ahead. Well, there's just a Latino identity. When you were talking about wrestling with the term Latino, and I'm sorry, Greg, I don't remember the piece, but the thing that I always wonder is the Latino identity here, the pan-Latino identity here, is so different than what I've seen in any other part of the country. In New York, people say they're Puerto Rican, they're um, Dominican, they're Cuban, they're Mexican, whatever. And here people say they're Mexican, but even Salvadorans are a little bit Mexican, mm -hmm. and Mexicans are a little Salvadoran. Mm -hmm. Like, there's just... I mean, me Mexican, me Mexican pop culture has a deep influence in, 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 Latin, in Latin America. So in that sense, I also would argue that this is a Latin American city since it's a Mexican, mm -hmm. such a Mexican city. I mean, ever since the 1950s and the Época de Oro del Cine Mexicano, Mexican, Mexican pop culture rules Latin America for, for better or worse mm -hmm. uh, in many cases. Do, do, do any of you imagine a time when... when Latino and, or, and or Latin American LA has the influence here as heads of museums, as heads of universities. Are we gonna see that now? Oh, so we're seeing it now. Yeah. We're seeing it now. I mean, uh, recently not to brag, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've just been given a museum to house the collection. In, in Riverside? Riverside in Riverside. <laughs> And uh, after a long, long struggle with a lot of museums over the whole country, uh, the recognition is starting to build here. Uh, and where, where it should, the, the thing that, that uh, the question has been intriguing me lately is what is a Chicano now at this point in our, in our history? I'm not, I'm not, I think it, it is, we need, and I'm, that's the, the question I'm bringing up to, for, the, for the first thing we want to answer at the Cheech. It's called the Cheech. Um, <laughs> the Cheech. Yeah, like they have the bro. Dude, I, I want a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> the bro, the Getty. When, when, when is the opening the so we can invite everyone here? 2020. 2020 will open. Um, I, I'm getting signals that I'm, I'm to close, yeah. and that's a, that's a beautiful moment to, that we're going to get the Cheech Museum in, yeah. in Riverside, California. Please, uh, please stick around and ask questions and thank our wonderful guests for that. Oh, thank you. Hi, I'm Margie Ornston. Can you guys talk a little bit about the PST art shows you've seen these past couple of months and what stood out for you? The, the, for me, I'm sorry, I don't want to jump in here, but the, uh, Carlos Alamara's show at LACMA was... It was just phenomenal. I mean, it was his first uh, major retrospective anywhere. And, uh, and I just, you know, what a painter. He's one of our great painters. Uh, and to see all the iconic works uh, in one place, and it was just, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was just, uh, we worked on that for, for a number of years. I'd been working with Michael Govan of LACMA for now 10 years, and we'd been having this constant conversation. And he recognized right away that he wanted to reach out to the Latino community the art community and, and do a show. So we did uh, 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 the uh, Chicano Painters of LA from the collection and that went really well. And I kept on it with, we, we got a show, Almaraz and Almaraz. And so finally I said, okay, we're gonna do the Almaraz show. Uh, we'll make it part of LA, LA. Uh, I go, great, when is that? So five years from now. <laughs> 
what? I may not be alive five years from now. <laughs> but eventually the day came, and it, came and, it was, and it was a great day for L.A. We're surrounded by particular cultures like Oaxacans or whatever that my <coughs> family's grown up with. Yeah. And they seem to be sort of the in invisibles within the mm -hmm. invisibles, if you will. So I just wanted you to speak a little bit about, you know, things as though they weren't perhaps as monolithic as you've articulated. Well, I, I, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are, there are uh, uh, and in New York, this is a, this is a very worrisome phenomenon. I, I just recently interviewed the, the uh, consul general of Mexico there, and, and uh, he was telling me how this is a problem for them uh, and uh, a concern, uh, the fact that there, there's, there's, there's a large community of immigrants who not, not, not only they, they, do they not speak English or Spanish, uh, they, they only speak in indigenous languages, and in, here in LA, basically the same thing happens. And I think the, the Oaxacan community in particular, I think, is, is very interesting because it is vulnerable, but it's also incredibly powerful. I mean, the, the percentage of, for example, Oaxacan women who uh, uh, begin businesses, and you probably know this as well as I do, um, is incredibly high, so uh, I, I think it's uh, just a fascinating uh, a topic. This, these subdivisions of the of the community uh, itself. But on the flip side, or the more positive side, I think in young in younger communities, these subcultures are having a real influence. I mean, if you look around in fashion, for example, Oaxacan yeah. fashion is everywhere. I carry around this bag that I bought in Oaxaca for maybe five dollars. You can buy it online for hundred and five. And like all the hip millennials in New York are carrying it. So there is this weird um, sort of paradox between what you're talking about, invisibility, which is real, and then this sort of um, ascendant of culture, and particularly in art and fashion, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Manuel Pastor from USA. Uh, you've talked a lot about how, in some sense, Latin America is affecting Los Angeles. Maybe if you might talk a little bit about how Los Angeles Latinos are affecting Latin America. Certainly Chicano art seems to have had an impact on Mexican art. The immigrant experience is having a huge impact in the way Latin American countries perceive the United States. And the creation of news and culture, Leon, here in Los Angeles is rippling back onto Latin America. So if we turn the mirror the other way, what kind of comments do you have? Um, uh, the biggest art movement in the world today is street art. Uh, it is all over the world. You cannot drive from the airport to the center of any international city without seeing it on both sides of the highway. It's a language. And I don't care if you're going from, you're in Caracas or Cairo, you're going to see that. And, and it is a language. It doesn't have an alphabet, but it does have uh, idioms that, that it speaks in, and it does have has a formation. Uh, but it started here in L.A. That That street art, not necessarily tagging, but street art as a, as a boundary designation started here in L.A. with Chas Bojorquez, and it moved into, Mex into the younger class of Mexicans that were, they were not collecting uh, modern art, or they didn't have any money, to, but there was this street art, and those kids came coming back and forth. Central Americans, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, I mean, Puerto Rico, please. Uh, <laughs> Costa Ricans, back and forth. And that, that, that movement kept happening and is happening today. And then on to South America, where it really took the leap and became street art. And it 
you can go to anywhere in the world. I don't care. And, then you, and you can see it. And it is a language that doesn't have a precise definition, but it is very much like Chicano art in which you get the sabor. You get the flavor of what they're trying to say. You see the issues that are going on in that city as you drive into it. And it's all over the world. And that is an, a huge Mexican influence, a Chicano influence. Manuel, quickly, uh, I, I would say, and it's great to see you. I don't know where you are. Great to see you. Great to see you. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think that something uh, uh, positive that has come from the, from the Trump tragedy is that uh, our countries in... in uh, in Latin America, and in Mexico in particular, have had to uh, take the, the, the immigrant experience head-on and, uh, and uh, grapple with, with what that means. I mean, we are very much used in Mexico to just dismiss Mexicans who leave, uh, I mean, to the point of sort of denying, denying them de facto the vote. Just recently, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's become easier to vote from abroad before it was the most uh, impossible process that you can imagine. But uh, now with, uh, with this sort of uh, reverse diaspora that's, that's happening or that might happen, which is, uh, it's not the same thing, but for, for practical purposes of per perception purposes it is, I think that people in Mexico have had to open their eyes to uh, the enormous uh, part of Mexico, 25% of Mexico, 20% of Mexico, that lives here. And that, uh, from, from the enormous tragedy that has been Donald Trump, I, I think that's... I, I wish this positive side didn't, ha didn't happen, of course, but it's here now, and I, I think it's, it's good for Mexico to realize that uh, we exist and... Uh, We've also started to export anxiety, I think. <laughs> I mean, there's an anxiety from relatives of immigrants who live here in their country of... I mean, I read uh, somebody I know uh, wrote to me saying, what does this mean for my family in the United States? And there's like an anxiety of, are they gonna be sent back? But mm -hmm. it's the anxiety is coming from the other side of the border, mm -hmm. that worry that their relatives are gonna come back. Wow. Mm. Uh, my name is Ralph Tide. Um, I'm an immigrant from Brazil myself of German ancestry. I'm married to a beautiful American woman whose family has partially been here since this was Mexico. Uh, and we talk about cultural identity a lot. And one of the things that comes up is um, that experience that we both have of our grandparents or parents telling us or someone, we don't want you to learn X language because we want you to be X identity. Or we really want you to learn X language because we want you to maintain your identity. And I wanted to ask you guys if you have uh, had that experience as well at one point, what point in your family history that showed up, and if this is changing now with the new generations, if this is going back the other way. Mm. Mm. Uh, my father, who was born here in Los Angeles in 1922, I believe, uh, uh, when he started uh, school, he couldn't speak English, and he was punished for, for not speaking, for speaking Spanish in school. They made him sit in a corner and look. And so that it was his experience and that generation. Uh, and, uh, he spoke enough English to, uh, uh, to get into the Navy and fight in World War II, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, but in, 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 in my parents' generation, they spoke both languages. But by the time I didn't grow up in a, in a, in a neighborhood that spoke Spanish, so I grew up in an all-black and an all-white neighborhood. And so they would use that as their secret language when they didn't want me to know. But 
but you heard it all the time. So you were, you were living, you know, two steps from the blues, you know. <laughs> and, and so you heard it. So if, if in my case, when, when I was, uh, I think in my 40s, I said, I'm this close. I'm going to learn more, you know. So I started, we were talking about, I started going to Costa Rica a lot and staying there for months at a time. And then you're forced to speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And that, by dint of that, I, I learned more. But it's, uh, why wouldn't you want to speak as many languages as you can? Just my dream, I swear to God, I have this dream all the time that I can speak every language. <laughs> That's cool. Every language. I don't care if it's Swahili or Bantu or whatever, but I can speak it. And it's like, I have friends everywhere. Everybody loves me. In my, dream. In my dreams. <laughs> Next question. I, just, I bragged on my parents earlier for not teaching me Spanish, and it is true, it is a constant tension in four generations of, or three generations of my living family, four of my living family right now. But on the other hand, I get what was different then when I was a kid of the 80s. But now, to Chicha's point, there is no reason for anybody to say it's better to be monolingual. Right. Yeah. Just the um, language acculturation, the, the maintenance of, of Spanish usually happens at a high end and low end economically. Yeah. So it's those who can afford and go to college and learn Spanish and those who never... So, so those who are, are in neighborhoods that speak Spanish and maintain it. And Richard Alba, one of the great American sociologists on this, you can actually you can show from 10 mile jumps from the border, the occult, language acculturation is thorough. If you live on the border, you are bilingual forever. And it's not gonna change. But with each 10 miles, it comes harder and harder to maintain a level of Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, but th things have th the opportunities, though. You need infrastructure to learn to maintain languages. You need good schools, you need universities. You need... So the Spanish will not be lost in its entirety by any means. It never has been in Los Angeles. But it often is a, a, a large portion will stop speaking it as a primary language. And that has been the process throughout the United... R uh, Ruben Rumbao, a great sociologist at UC Irvine, um, it talk, has said historically, like it or not, the United States has been a language graveyard. And it's not because of the dictates of, the, of, of a grandma who's afraid or a racist who's, a, who's afraid. It's usually the inexorable power of American culture. Mm -hmm. And it's just this power of, you know, I, I, one of the stories I used to tell is I flew, I got sick of LA, and I flew 17 hours to Cape Town. I took an eight day frickin' ship to the most remote inhabited island on Earth called Tristan da Cunha. Look it up on a map. There's 278 people. They're all related. I get there. I'm like, oh, I'm free. I'm so fucking far away from life. And someone asked me if I had a Garth Brooks CD. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a powerful pull. And Next win. question. <laughs> and I had one. No. I realize that the term Chicano has its roots in um, you know, the 60s, the farm labor movement. Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of friends that are Central Americans, uh, or of Central American descent, that really identify with the term Chicano because Absolutely. like you are uh, from uh, Panama descent, right? And you mm -hmm. said you, you took uh, Chicano studies. Um, so they really, they really identify with that ni de aquí, ni de allá, neither here nor there um, idea. And I know that in the, in the 60s, the Filipinos as well identified with this. So I guess um, my question is, how do you feel about that? And since I realize language is a, a living thing and it changes and evolves all the time, mm -hmm. do you 
how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I think our Chicano identity is, is exactly as you exp explain, is expanding all the time. You cannot have that back and forth between young Mexicans, Central Americans coming back and forth and living together in communities being exposed to the same influences, whether urban or rural, uh, intermarriage, uh, Chicano or Salvadoranian or Honduran artists paint Chicano imagery and because that is how they grew up. And I think the, the term and the definition of Chicano has to exp expand to include them right now. I think that's a very important thing because it's, we're not something that grew out of a certain time period, you know, uh, that, and that identity keeps needing to be revived. And that, I hear this all the time, wherever I go, and especially from artists who want all these Central Americans, South Americans to be included in their identity. Because what it does, it points out their otherness. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's very important for them, to be other. Because Chicano is, is, is an insulting term. It was an insult by Mexicans to other Mexicans living in this country, the concept being that the, the Mexicanos who had left their country and were living in tin shacks along the border were no longer truly Mexicanos anymore. They were something less. They were something smaller. Mm. They were chicos. They were chicanos. And now, <clears throat> and now uh, we're the biggest and exploding uh, part of that at identity that has traveled all over the world. I was just in Topeka, Kansas, 175,000 people, 50 Mexican restaurants. <laughs> there was more Mexican restaurants in Topeka, Kansas than there are McDonald's. That tells you something. Icamalaco, Gerardo. Icamalaco means my name is in Cosa. So you were talking about Cape Town. Um, my question to you, Cheech, is that you were talking about LACMA, they were basically rejecting your art. So in a way, there was the, the museum industry has created this apartheid-type yes. system mm -hmm. for Chicano art mm -hmm. and maybe progressive art. So mm -hmm. there's, let's say it how it is, there's an apartheid structure in the museum industry. Um, do you still see that resistance played out here in Los Angeles? Um, if you were to go back to LACMA or to any of these museums here in Los Angeles, would they embrace your art? And the follow-up question is, I feel that Los Angeles has an unofficial language of Spanglish. In the, um, especially the young generation, there's a lot of Spanish and English mezclado. Um, the hipsters may not understand it because they're basically kind of taking over our communities. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about um, <laughs> Spanglish being the unofficial language of Los Angeles? Me gusta Spanglish, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I find the museum culture is changing rapidly. Here's the, here's the ironic situation with, with LACMA. Officially, the stance was we don't, we, Chicano art is not fine art, it's, it's agiprop folk art, and we don't, blah, 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 blah. But they have done more Chicano shows than any other museum in the United States. <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do you get mad or you don't get mad? Or like, but they didn't include that. It always has been in the early days at the point of a gun, man. It, 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 you know, it, it required the, uh, the Latino or the Chicano artists to come and spray paint the building and send their, set up their own impromptu shows inside of the museums. That's how they got their first show. But we've played in 50 museums. 
in the United States now, and that that the, the cat is out of the bag, you know. Uh, and the Smithsonian, we, we did almost a million people there, you know. When did so you start buying? When I start buying, uh, art, art. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had to buy some marijuana for my sisters the other day. And I to this point, and I so I, I and I and I had to, I had to get a card, you know. It was still uh, you know med, medical. I had to get a card and to go to the doctor and blah blah blah. And you go to and I went to the dispenser and I realized I haven't bought dope in forty years. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I never used it, but I never bought it. <laughs> you know, um, no, it is, it is absolutely changing wherever we go. I mean, you know, it's just I, I think those those walls have been broken down, but they continued to need to be broken down and, and, and stopped. But uh, the second part of your question was, how do we stop that? Uh, acculturation, is that was, was the... Uh, uh, no, no, Spanglish. Spanglish. Oh, Spanglish. I love Spanglish. Here's another story, my Russian wife. There's a, there's a concept, there's a, a concept in, in, in language, it's a, a code, called code switching. And it's the use of the other language that you're not fluent in in order to indicate the depth of your immersion in the culture. And how hip of the, is the word that you use to express, hey, I know this word because I'm from L.A., or, but I'm still Mexican. Or, but it happens all over the world. Uh, Chinese do it, Japanese do it. So my, my, my wife, who was completing her doctorate at USC uh, and speaks five languages. She's always on the hunt for these words. They're like, ooh, that's, that's what. So, so a phone call came in the other day that was a friend of mine and he was inviting me to the show and it says, blah, 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 don't go down there. So blah, 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 blah. And I saw my wife perk up. You know, like, oh, she's, she's heard something. The next day she's talking to her Russian girlfriend and she says, uh, blah, 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 Russian, Russian, Russian. And she says, uh, don't go down, it's total clusterfuck. <laughs> <laughs> this is a woman with a PhD, you know, speaks five languages. <laughs> clusterfuck, don't go down. <laughs> and that, that is the equivalent of Spanish. And I think that is a wonderful language. I mean, it, it is uh, it, uh, everywhere you go. Betsy, I'm from Venice, California. It's like just two of us left, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so gentrification and the invisibility, totally. My husband's family is from Oaxaca background, and so we have a joke where it's like, every time we go out to eat, we're going to see one of your relatives, you know? Yeah. And it's true most of the time, so we get free dessert. Um, <laughs> but I do, as a parent, I actually have kind of a question and maybe like requests especially from other people sitting here in the room. Um, art really empowers, and I feel that literature also empowers. I've received my children's like scholast uh, scholastics, you know, book order form or whatever. There were two Latina books. One was on Sonia Sotomayor, and one was on Frida Kahlo, and I was not impressed with the Frida Kahlo book. <laughs> Um, so I'm talking to my reporters, can we do something about providing quality art and literature for our Latino uh, children? And, you know, not just Latino, but just to have an awareness. There's such a rich culture, uh, you know, which is what we've been talking about, Latino culture in California. But um, thank you. Can we get, but um, do you, <laughs> I forgot my question. Uh, can you, 
you know, can you guys do something about getting better literature Jenny, for our youth? Out? And I, one thing I do have, sorry, I remember my question. I ha I'm a parent, and so what do you recommend I do uh, when my children are invisible or treated less than? Do you, and students, do you recommend that I um, give them a voice? Or, I mean, it's just, I just feel there's going to be a lot of this, you know, as LA is changing yet again as a parent Jenny, and educator. what should she do? Yeah. Help her out. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I was a parenting expert. I have two little kids, and I wish I was a publisher who had the power to create books, but I'm neither, uh, I'm certainly not that. I would say I totally agree with you, and I think there's been a lot written about, specifically about children's books. There was just an article in my newspaper the other day about the lack of um, people of color in children's publishing specifically. I think it's getting better. My daughter's five years old, and I've been on you know, every book website and bookstore in LA, and I've noticed more and more and more high quality stuff. So I'm sort of optimistic that it will change, again, sort of to Greg's point, as people come into power, both economically, politically, and sort of culturally, um, as more of us get into the publishing world. And, you know, the only, I, I'm a parent who doubts myself every day, the only answer I have to the giving voice is yes, give it to them as much as you possibly can. I have two things to tell you. First, uh, there's this place called La Libreria, uh, yeah. which is absolutely amazing, small little place, uh, full of books in Spanish. Um, look it up online. I don't remember the, 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 the address. It's near Culver City. Uh, take them there, A. B, I'll just tell you a quick story about my, my eldest son. I have two kids who were born here, who are Angelinos, uh, who are five years old, but uh, my eldest, who is now nine, uh, he's, he's an immigrant, and proudly so, and in his school he always uh, has identified himself as an, as an, as an immigrant. He's the actually, actually the only foreign-born kid in his whole year, his whole class, he identifies uh, as, as an immigrant. And when uh, Donald Trump uh, won the election, I wasn't there uh, at home, uh, but he was, he, was, he was crying, he was uh, agitated, and the next day I, I asked him, how do you feel? And, uh, and he said, I'm amazed that so many people voted for, for such a bad man, and then he went quiet, and again, this is a, a kid who identifies as, as an immigrant, proudly so, also loves this country, and, and, and now identifies also as an American, although he is not an American citizen but hopefully will be in the near future. He went uh, around the kitchen a few times and looked at me and said, well, Daddy, at least I don't look Mexican. <laughs> so, yeah, you laugh, but it, in the end, uh, if, if you think about it, it's, 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 very, it's, it's a tragic thing to hear a kid say, right? Uh, it's survival instinct, first, and it's a desire to become invisible when being visible is a threat, right? So what I told him and what I have told him ever since then was I've reaffirmed his identity and I've told him to reaffirm his identity. And he just recently was in his school showcase and whatever and he stood up and said, I stand up for immigrant rights. So I would tell yeah. you, just uh, tell them to defend their, their identity, their voice, and, and honestly to believe in democracy because that's what makes this country great. Uh, I, I, democracy is a great thing and we're three years away from a new election, so. Mm -hmm. well, that's, uh, 
I want to just once again thank all of our panelists tonight. You're great. Thank you.